Hello, Heron. Hello, Tom. Oh, so how's this evening treating you? Oh, I'm feeling pretty relaxed. Very good. Very good. So, um, since we last talked, do you have any topics you want to raise? Anything you'd like to discuss? Well, actually, there are a couple things I want to talk about, but I think there are things probably not for this show because they're really just sort of technical things that uh, you could be helpful <laughs> oh, okay. for me with. Okay. So we well, can do that maybe after or some other certainly. time. Not a problem. Not a problem. Yeah. Always willing to give technical support to my friends. Ah, yes. Thank you. <laughs> so anyway, well, I've got a, I've got a few topics for us to discuss. That um, ought to be enough. You, we usually can take one and go somewhere <laughs> bizarre with it. So I guess so. Uh, I guess so. Uh, we, we do have really quite a well-defined technical form associated with this show, don't we? Yeah, we start somewhere, <laughs> and you've got a, li- a list of uh, backup questions, and uh, yes. we, we rely on our erratic uh, creativity oh, erratic instincts yes yeah. well i wanted to start with this idea of the mirror and it's something which comes up periodically in my life and something that i associate with perhaps my dealings with others um i had a a, a friend who actually features uh heavily in my writing as my cohort but he was a fellow in real life i should probably point out even though you've read my writing that the at least the fictional account uh of the, the the character in the in the book is very unlike my actual reality. It's really a uh, not even a satire. It's it's a created character. Uh, and my friend, however, is actually quite accurately represented in the book. He was, I guess, what you'd call in Australia the term feral is used to describe uh, a group <laughs> of people, which are kind of modern day. Well, not even modern day anymore, but kind of eclectic. They would be hippies, but they're probably more grunge-related, you know, of, of, yeah, that, of yeah. that type of person. Uh-huh. So anyway, he I mean, he was a, a, a school friend, a very early friend of mine, and we kind of maintained a friendship, even though he went in one direction, I went in a completely different direction. But he was not particularly, even to this day, he's not particularly good with money, he's not particularly reliable, uh, he's just this kind of character. And there was a situation where he moved to Sydney, he worked on the film shine he was actually the publicist for shine um quite a a funny story because i'm not using his name i can actually probably give an account of the story in in pretty good detail um he uh was a heavy even in his uh early to mid-teens he was a heavy cannabis user and he walked into ronan films who produced shine uh very very heavily inebriated quite quite stoned and proceeded to have a long discussion. He played bridge, the card game, um, pretty uh, prolifically. And he was able to have a long discussion with the uh, one of the two owners of Ronan Films. So he, about a, a stoned guy walks in off the street to a, a major movie studio and plays bridge with the owners. Well, talks about bridge with the owners with a particular passion. I think he's he's very um, he's very charismatic. He wow. basically could talk to anyone at any level. I mean, my mother was a diplomat, and he would come to the diplomatic parties and you know argue with the other diplomats and what have you. Um, so he really had no fear when dealing with people, even when he was particularly inebriated. And um, he <laughs> he got this position anyway with Ronan Films, and he publicised the movie Shine. 
which for me was just an amazing experience. Wait a minute, I still have to go back to this. So this guy doesn't know anybody there, had no intro, anything. He no. walked up to the, the studio and talked his way into the owner's uh, office? Well, it was a relatively small, okay, to, to call it a studio, they basically funded, I mean, Shine was originally, before it won the Academy Award, was uh, it was originally you know an independent Australian film? Yeah. So you've got to appreciate when you're talking about an office here, you're talking about maybe 900 square feet worth of floor, floor space, mm-hmm. pretty well open plan. Uh, and I'm not really sure the details no. associated with how he got in there, but he the story that he tells is that he walked in off the street, had this conversation with the owners. My suspicion is that he, there may be some kind of bridge community knowledge because there's kind of a bridge mafia yeah. that he was part of. Yeah. So my suspicion is probably that through the bridge community, they may have had some minor position there. He turned up, talked the talk, yeah. and they gave him the job of, of yeah, publicizing cool. Shine. It's <laughs> still a good story. <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's what happened. It would have been better if he... If he had no connection, just schmoozed his way. True. Well, I don't think he knew them. I don't think he knew them at all. I think it was kind of friends of friends of friends, which yeah. is, just, I guess, the nature yeah, of the but I guess it doesn't take much to get get this. I don't know. Well, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't a big film, but for me, I saw it before it was even released in Australia, and I found yeah. it very moving. I still find it very moving. I think it's quite an accurate account. Oh, of, it's an uh, interesting movie, but he's a terrible pianist. Yes. Well, I mean, that's just pathetic. And and the fact that all the non-musicians think he's some sort of great musician, it's just pathetic. Well, true. I know, but uh, well, I, I think, look, the, the notion of... Uh, well, I, I think there are many layers to the film. He's really good for a mentally ill uh, guy. Certainly. You know, but, I mean, he's not a Murray Pariah or Glenn Gould, you know. I, I, look, <laughs> without question, I don't think the film is really, okay, you're, you're no, right. No, I, no, it's, no, the film isn't about that at all. But but, yeah. but what it's about is uh, typical homo sapiens' response to the film. Yeah. And to his an ability to play the piano. Yeah. <laughs> the only other connection I have with the film, Shine, is that there's a scene in the wine bar where he plays before he's becomes famous again. And there's a scene on the stairs of the wine bar where someone walks past another fellow, and the extra is actually my Australian Film Commission contact who gave the first and only grant to Noble 8 um, back, I don't know, 1997 kind of time frame. Philip by the name of who... Um, who's pretty... I, again, now, now I've mentioned his name, I, well, I'm going to tell a story anyway, and... Um, I don't know what we'll do with this, but I'll tell the story anyway. This fellow was, uh, I guess, one of the head people in the Australian Film Commission. I had a group of friends that knew him in Adelaide, uh, and they had been pretty heavily passionate about uh, Noble Ape as a development. He had this office in um, in King's Cross, which is like the major prostitution district of Sydney, but he was just across the street, so just as you got into the red light district, there was his offices. And there was a very famous Coke sign in King's Cross where his offices were located. And this fellow thought that I was just the, I don't know, just some naive, innocent nerd. And um, uh, without going into too many details, he proceeded to, while I was in his office one day, have an extensive discussion associated with a drug deal on the phone while I was sitting in his office, just, you know, minding my own business, waiting to talk about Noble Ape. 
but he was quite a, a crazy character who was also connected with Sean. But anyway, my friend... Okay. So, sorry, I've used his real name now. Oh, okay, well, this, this unnamed friend. <laughs> Shine deal. Anyway, so after all this, he basically was just on top of the world. I mean, he had um, he publicised a, a, you know Academy Award-winning film. Where was he going to go from there? So he moved to Sydney and decided to uh, work as a manager in a toy soldier store in Sydney because he could do anything in the world, and that was what he wanted to do, basically. So when he went up to Sydney, he stayed with this fellow who proceeded to take all his money and use him and treat him really poorly. And then he came back to Canberra and gave me an account of this circumstance. And I looked at him. My my friend, I would I would lend him money every year for various things. And at the end of the year, I would just wipe his debts because he would just borrow money and never repay it. And when he had this experience where he went up to Sydney and had all his money taken from him and basically being treated effectively like dirt, he came back and told me this account. And I said, what you've seen here is a mirror. This is a mirror to the kind of experience that you can generate around the, the, you know, that you show to the world, basically. And what has happened here is you have found a circumstance where the way you behave, basically, is replicated, but even more strongly. So you can see this in the reflection of the situation. And this is the lead into, I guess, the kind of weak experience that I've had in some regard, although maybe not quite as, as profound as that. But this idea of the mirror is a recurring theme in my life that basically sometimes you see circumstances both from your perspective as well as the world sees you. And with that particular lead-in, let me let me discuss this this evening's topic. Um, so I guess my it's it's an interesting deconstruction because the way I live my life in terms of you know going and working nine ten hours a day and coming home and these kind of things, relatively I don't know disconnected I guess from firstly my online um, persona in some regard, but also, you know, what I do with Biota and the writing and these kind of things. I mean, basically, I'm, uh, you know, a workaday engineer in what I do. But through the other things that I've done, I have a lot of contacts. I have friends and I know people that have done various things and people have contacted me and these kind of things. And I do like to keep the two things somewhat separated because I guess... I don't know. There's the justification. This came back from the uh, discussion about the high school friend that uh, we went out and had dinner with, I guess, about a month ago now. The sense of, you know, what I do after hours and what I do in order to earn a living, they seem to be kind of moving in two very different directions. But I guess one pays for the other, so that justifies it. And um, Actually, I, I don't think you need to justify it. I don't think you do There's either. There's no way you can justify your choices. You just exactly. you choose no, and I agree. live with the consequences. I agree. And fuck it. Exactly. <laughs> now, my, mother, my mother and I have had exactly the same discussion, because certainly when my mother was a diplomat, um, particularly representing Australians' interests through the, uh, the Gulf War, in particular the last Gulf War, you know, I think she regularly came into these kind of ethical problems and she said exactly what you've said, that, uh, you know, you earn a living and you do what you do in order to do what you do after hours in order to create things and, you know, and if anyone questions you, as you say, fuck well, them. Well, the important thing is to question yourself. Certainly. But, but the answers, uh, what other people think about it is irrelevant. 
Exactly. And, unless, of course, you care to consider what they <laughs> they have to say. But yeah, certainly. Anyway, the, you, but you're right. You do need to be hard on yourself. I think. Yeah. But a, a justification? Yeah, I don't know about that. So anyway, I'm sorry. Go on. Anyway, so <laughs> I guess I mean my experience when I moved to the Bay Area. My experience traveling around prior to moving to the Bay Area. I met a lot of people who, you know, you you occasionally see on television. I mean, the fellow Douglas Rushkoff, who I've mentioned previously, frequently pops up in documentaries that we just watch casually, I guess because we have interests. Uh, my wife and I have interests which overlap into Doug Rushkoff's various talking interests. So it will occasionally happen that, you know, my wife and I will be watching a documentary and Doug Rushkoff's face will come on the screen. But similarly, I guess the experiences, and I really do associate this with... Um, I guess my early 20s and before my early 20s, because certainly moving to Las Vegas, I'm not sure if we've talked about Penn Gillette and his crew here, um, but certainly my experiences with regards to trying to integrate or at least reach out to these people, because, I mean, basically I've, I've been published in books which are you know, associated with and also have containing interests with people like Dawkins and these kind of things. So I guess in my late 20s, I've been less successful than early 30s in terms of reaching out to these kind of people. But certainly in my early 20s, um, you know, I didn't really have any access problems. I could uh, work with, you know, a wide variety of people, CEOs, um, you know, without any problem. But I never had any access issues. And moreover, I guess I don't have this fear which seems to be necessary when you deal with these people. And... Um, I guess I, it almost became a kind of an adrenaline thing. It's something which I haven't really deconstructed until this week, uh, because certainly I got a great deal of enjoyment in terms of the ability as a relatively young kid to be, you know, hanging out with these CEOs and what have you. And I think conversely, what they saw in me was basically youth energy and some work ethic, which meant that I just basically didn't sleep and worked, you know, seven days a week, which I guess they had in their early memories as well. But um, coming to this week, particularly, this is the guest that I've been trying to um, get on this recording, but who actually appealed on Model Rail Radio, this Brandon DiCamello fellow. Uh, and he appeared on Model Rail Radio, had a really good time. He sent me a series of emails following and it was pretty cool. I mean, this is a guy who basically has um, had, had, had dominated um, a large portion of MTV's programming for about eight years. I mean, the things have ebbed and, and fallen now. Uh, but he's certainly someone who uh, I think would certainly aid this discussion uh, and provide some interesting insights. And this fellow is still producing independent videos. I... Uh, bought one of his independent DVDs uh, over the past couple of days and watched it last night. And I think he's still got quite a lot of interesting things to say, and certainly in a kind of passive, what we call a long-form uh, approach that we do in these recordings, I think he'd be someone who would be um, very receptive yeah. to this kind of video. Yeah. However, there is an element that I'm also, as I was with Wozniak as well and people like this, a, a fan of his prior work, basically, and my wife in particular has made it pretty clear that I'm... I mean, the, to be clear, the way I get access to people, and certainly the way I got access to people when I was in my early 20s, was both the direct approach, but also through from a relatively early age dealing with diplomats and various, you know, stately folk in Australia. There were various protocols that we had to adhere to, and my mother taught us quite strictly from an early age, or taught me in particular 
Uh, and there are just ways that you deal with people, which makes it a lot easier to actually gain access to, you know, CEOs of, yeah. you know, Fortune whatever companies. Um, and I think that's the mentality that I've kind of maintained on. So I know when I deal with people to treat them with a, a great degree of respect and also, you know, certain degree of politeness. You, you and know, just you, like you, you've hit on something that that has been floating around in my head for a while, not recently, but you just called it all forth, and it mm-hmm. and it it's related to what I, I would think of as the British aristocracy. Mm, very yeah. much so. Yeah, yeah, and um, and then basically lower middle class uh, trailer trash in America. <laughs> okay, and one of the and and it, this is stuff that goes back that begins in infancy. It's a kind of attitude about uh, your rights and your position in the world. So it is sort of absorbed pre linguistically. It's a sort of bedrock identity of. Um, of uh, a right to <laughs> to all the best, and yes. and other people who feel like they are sort of scum and scurrying around the edges to get what they can. Yeah, and uh, and of course, there's a, probably a bunch of stuff in between there. And I clearly was raised to be picking up the scraps uh, among the garbage cans. Mm. I mean, that's the mentality that pervades a lot of America. But to be clear, the role that the diplomat has, the kind of archetype of the diplomat, is to do exactly the same thing, but to pick up the scraps of the uber-rich and various special interests, which are fundamentally dirty. I mean, certainly my experience (laughs) talking to my mother indicated that the people that she was dealing with, particularly in the UAE, were, uh, as you say, well, no, not the, in the scraps of the aristocracy. I mean, that's what it was about. It was about dealing with the super rich and the super powerful in a way where you were basically picking up their waste matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so I understand that. I appreciate that. And certainly that's where I come to it. I don't come to it from um, the perspective of, you know, the CEOs or what have you. I yeah. mean, my, my yeah, and that goes a long was, way. You can't, it's hard. I, I can't fake that. I don't have yeah. that. Yeah. I think the trick is to always uh, always have a sense of the privilege to be in the company of, and I think this is the dangerous part of it. This is certainly the mirror that I've seen um, in the past few days. So my my sense is that uh, Brenda DiGamello will appear in, in future um, Stone Age podcasts. I think he's very receptive to the long-form discussion. I don't know. I think he might actually subtly uh, have the same kind of fear that you have noted in terms of having a long-form discussion where it may get particularly detailed, but my hope is that, you know, we, we can bring out some interesting... Well, it's talk. all your problem. <laughs> it's your it is my show. It's it up is to initial. you to make it work. <laughs> moving, moving on from that, I guess what my wife pointed out was that I, I'm very well aware of this fellow's work um, and... You know, I've studied. I think the whole notion that this is this is the underlying thing that I want to talk to him about is this notion of humour, because when you talk to comedians and when you talk to people who do humour professionally, particularly in a serious fashion, you get some amazing insights into the human psyche, and particularly, particularly how these in things a serious that, fashion, doing yes. comedy in a in a serious well, way. That's the, a good one. I like that. The notion <laughs> is that basically, in in order to 
in order to get a laugh occasionally, you can be relatively chaotic in your form. But if you have to get a laugh consistently, you really need to approach humor almost in an academic oh, fashion. Yeah, yeah. And this is where it gets really Well, at least you have to be conscious of it on some level. Maybe exactly. not scientifically. Yeah, but you need to know Certainly. what's and this happening. Is what, <laughs> yeah. This is what's interesting academically, yeah. because academically there's very little written about humor. My father um, is a sociologist, and I have bought him... Uh, I think I bought him two, but possibly, yeah, I think I bought him two books uh, that are literally in the past uh, century the only two books that have been written in great length about humor. Really? One is called The Anatomy of the Dirty Joke, which basically historically analyzes how the dirty joke has not really evolved but maintained as a constant <laughs> in, in human and psyche. And how long has the dirty joke been around? Do you, I think do you it remember? goes back to 300, 400. The kind of dirty jokes that we're telling currently are the same dirty jokes that they were telling certainly around the time of the, um, uh, what do they call it here, the American War of Independence, and possibly yeah, even as yeah. early as the English Civil War. Oh, but that's not uh, very old. I mean, that, okay, so, you, all right, I'm, I was thinking but, you were going to tell me 2,000 years. But does a linguist, yeah. do you understand the notion that our language has fundamentally changed at least two, twice since then, in terms of just the, um, well, uh, just in terms of the, the mode of speaking, in terms of the values, in terms of hard, reflexive edges, a lot of the jokes that you would think are very much caught up in, um, well, for example, uh, what is it, Three Ducks Walk Into a Bar? You know that joke? No. Okay, Three Ducks Walk Into a Bar. One of the, this has been Americanized, but uh, the, the bartender says to the first duck, uh, what's your name and what have you been doing today? And the first duck says, my name is Huey. I've been in and out of puddles all day. It was great fun. You know, I've been playing, what have you. Second duck, the uh, bartender asks him exactly the same question. What's your name? He says, oh, my name's Dewey. I've been in and out of puddles all day. It was a great bit of fun, you know, and blah, blah, blah. Third duck, uh, the bartender's kind of getting hip to this, and he says, um, so your name must be Louie. And the third duck says, no, my name's Puddles. So anyway, you'd think that kind of joke <laughs> you think that kind of joke would have certain linguistic Oh, you know, it does. That's a common thing. Yeah. Yeah, is, uh, yeah you t the last word changes the meaning of a word. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and it all hinges on that. That's a great one. So, yeah. And there are a wide variety of husband-wife jokes that at least go back to the American Civil War. So basically this book, and it's a thick book, I want to say it's at least 800 if not 1,000 pages. Oh, man. And it really that's, goes... That's serious. Find it on eight yeah. books. If you have any interest in this, The Anatomy of the Dirty Joke is... Uh, and I think it's a two-part. That may be where I'm confused in terms of... <laughs> so there are two volumes associated with this thing. Each I think one it has, of them is 800 pages, or is I it 400? So. I, no, no, I think each one is of, of that length. And I think I think the first one goes back to Roman times and actually starts analyzing dirty think, jokes. Yeah, there have got to be things, inscriptions yeah. on the pyramids, you know, or something. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So anyway, I mean, I think this whole notion of humor as an intellectual thing and the way Wait the comedian... when you're talking about dirty jokes, see, because... Um, that that one you told about three um, the three ducks. I mean the the that's interesting because the sex aspect of it is completely separate from what makes it funny. 
Certainly. You know, it's a, it's a, like you said, it's a linguistic distinction where a word's meaning uh, gets changed. Yes. <laughs> but yes. that doesn't need sex. That could be anything. And it would still do that. But there's something about the sexuality. Why? Yeah, why is it? Do they have to be? Do you, do you mean dirty jokes? It means sexually, or do you mean like lowbrow humor? Uh, now you're quizzing me. No, I think I think all of the I, the other one. I, this is American Civil War joke, because the the real trick is, um, and the way my father did it, because I bought him the book before I, I read it, so he read out a couple over the phone to me, and the trick was to work out when what period the joke had started, <laughs> and in each in each of the ones, I was always off by about two hundred years. I mean, jokes that seem very, very contemporary, are actually at least 200 years old. So it's this, anyway, so we're kind of diverging here, but this whole notion of humour as an academic thing or something which is studied, because it was certainly something that I thought about quite a bit. I've not talked a lot, I mean, I've not talked at all here about my own perspective with humour, but as a a small child, um, I had a cleft palate, I had various surgeries and things like that. And the way that I survived was solely through humour, but it was through immediate response humour. How old were you at this time? When I st- probably when I arrived in high school, I was thirteen, and I saw within probably the first two months of me arriving in high school, probably three kids knocked out cold. It was a very violent high school. There were gangs. There was just a, the chance of me being the fourth kid that was knocked out cold was relatively high. <laughs> and I realized early on that my ability to make someone who was coming at me with a great degree of aggression laugh was probably the best defense that I had. Because if I ran, they would chase me down and yeah. Yeah. not stop until because I saw so someone. You either have to be funny or carry a gun. Well, yeah, <laughs> that was the yeah. choice. Bro. Yeah. So, um, Thankfully, somewhere through there, I guess, I mean, I don't know. Anyway, so humour was a large part of survival, and I really tuned it very quickly to the point where when I got to university, I didn't really have any problem making people cry with laughter. I mean, basically, that was just something that I did. Funnily enough, this whole behaviour changed very quickly when I moved to the, I mean, when I moved to the Bay Area and certainly when I moved to the UK and it's almost not necessarily a darker period of my life, but just where my survival instincts had to really change. There was no humor that could get me to survive through the Bay area and the arrival in the UK. I just had to get to something more primitive. So my whole personality kind of changed over that period and I lost the edge of humor. But I remember talking with a fellow who I've mentioned, actually he's married to, um, they're both academics. He's in um, upstate New York and his wife is at uh, Rice in Houston, Texas, I think. So he, um, very, very bright fellow, I mean, basically he broke standardised testing um, and did a wide variety of things and ended up studying economics at MIT. He could have gotten in and done anything but ended up there. Anyway, he sat with me, I think probably my second year, we were both in physics together, and said, how can you, what's what's the construction associated with humour? How can you make people laugh with such consistency? And a lot of my jokes were just, um, well, similar to the puddles example, but just either playing with words or playing with situations or just putting forward completely Were ridiculous these jokes situations. That he's talking about, are these jokes that you learned or just funny situations, I just make, I, stories I that you make up? I, 
I, no, but I mean, um, were, you, were you making up your own jokes, or were you uh, repeating ones and then... Uh, no, own, I was making up my own. It, it, was, it was dry wit. It was completely okay, dry. Okay, it was on the spur of the moment stuff. Exactly. Okay, all right. Exactly. Oh, that's the best I think, kind, man. That's the, I agree. I agree. That's, that's on a par with real rapping. You know, I mean, <laughs> Very that's, much so. that, that's, true. That's, they're not unrelated. True, very true. So I guess the analysis that I gave was that everyone had a kind of humor Achilles heel. And the things that struck me in particular, I mean, I guess when I arrived, I don't know. I mean, when I was in university, I um, initially lived in a very kind of conservative Catholic, uh, what they called the college, but it was basically a dormitory, set of dormitories on campus. And it was really quite an abrasive environment, but I learned very quickly that the bullies, the kind of prefect-like characters that lived there, uh, all had um, kind of strange emotional ties to various things. And I could use these things to confuse them. It wasn't really humor, but it was a kind of confusion uh, which I could put back to them. So when they wanted to be hostile and nasty to them, I would immediately feed back. Like, for example, the, the head prefect, who was just a horrible individual's brother uh, was a champion cross-country cyclist. Uh, and once I knew that, I could immediately use that basically whenever this guy would come at me with any form of aggression. And also, he was someone and who... And how would you use it? Well, uh, he... Well... Uh, let me think. There's one example where basically... Uh, we were, You were forced to sit together in out of order, so you didn't basically sit with people you knew or particularly liked in the eating environment and uh, particularly through the holidays because I wouldn't go away in the holidays I'd actually stay on campus uh, because I had a job through university he would we'd end up sitting together and I would always use discussions associated because I cycled quite a bit then and I had a mountain bike and I knew all the trails and things and I talked about some of my experiences cycling in the wilderness which would get him talking about his brother also there was a circumstance I contracted glandular fever which is mono in the US in my second year and um, basically there was a forced work duty that I couldn't do because I had mono and my father had told me that he had called someone and had a discussion and that this person had said to him you know that he was good friends with me and all these nice things and when the head prefect came at me and said you know you haven't been doing any of these things we're going to fine you and kick you out even though i was sick in bed with mono i said oh you spoke to my father and he said i never did such a thing and he said no you spoke to my father and he said you know you'd said all these nice things about me he said i'd never spoken to your father i said look you're calling my father a liar you know, you use these kind of hierarchical things to basically diffuse the situation and also make this fellow realise how completely ridiculous his hostility is. But I guess the humour reflex that I had generated, I was also able, and I still do to this day to a certain extent, dealing with just completely ridiculous aggression uh, from people that is coming from all quarters. But with regards to humour specifically, I had a very simple construction that basically there is always a an alternative reality which is very close to our own, but actually um, almost a way of a kind of coping strategy. So basically the harder things get, there is always an alternative reality where things are either slightly harder or slightly more humorous, <laughs> and you can kind of construct this reality in, in, in the way that you describe things. Like, you know, it could be worse, blah, blah, blah. But my humor then, and it's impossible for me to kind of recreate now because my circumstances are completely different, but then it was very much kind of quick, dry humor that would just basically, um, you know, work with people uh, quickly. And I remember having this discussion with my um, friend William, 
that this was basically the way that I operated, that I always maintained a parallel reality that I could talk about quickly in order to see what would defuse the moment. And I'm always like playing like five, six moves ahead um, in terms of in terms of dealing with people. But anyway, so I'm really interested in talking to Brandon DiCamello about this because he had a particularly kind of hostile high school experience or certainly what's written about publicly. I mean, I don't have primary access to the man to talk about that yet. And I'm interested in seeing how his humor developed through this experience and his experience in high school and the different directions that it's gone. And obviously from low budget to high budget, back to low budget and all these kind of things. So I think he'll be a very interesting character, but certainly my wife has been quite receptive in seeing that I don't want to look like a crazed super fan. So there's one thing kind of treating with respect. There's another thing, you know, understanding, uh, you know, great degrees of detail with regards to his life and his background and these kind of things. But the mirror that was put up to me this week was I was contacted by a fellow who is like a biota super fan. And this fellow contacted me through Facebook. In fact, his posts are still on my Facebook page. I, I befriended him initially just because that's what I do now. I just befriend people when they, you know, yeah, contact. Yeah, you can always unbefriend them. <laughs> it's so easy like this, to do. This fellow sent me five messages on Facebook, relatively long messages. I just thought, oh no, this guy is just, you know. Anyway, so he kept doing this. His his topic of interest is speciation. And the really interesting thing about speciation is you don't actually have to write it explicitly in artificial life because most artificial life simulation will create speciation for you. There will be forms of speciation that come out of the artificial life simulation. And my feeling is it's always better, and I did this with genetics and noble life as well, it's always better to do things implicitly than it is to do things explicitly because then when people, uh, you know, creationists and others come up and say, well, you just wrote that into, you know, you wrote that explicitly, you can say, no, actually, it's not written explicitly. It's an emergent property, which just shows that if you start with these fundamentals, sometimes these things actually come out at the end. So anyway... Um, I was hoping to uh, talk with Brandon either, well, either Sunday night or last night, so we'd have something, you know, I'd have audio to actually put in the feed, pass back to you, so we'd have something to talk about tonight. That didn't really, uh, that didn't really occur, so I thought, well, I've got this new recording software, I can give this other fellow a call and we can talk about artificial light. And actually, I'm using the... Have you got recording ability now? I'm recording currently. Okay, good. So, um... Using this recording software, I had tried to record a Biota podcast with a fellow in uh, the Czech Republic, and it had all gone wrong. Skype had disconnected. I didn't set up to record immediately, so that had kind of failed. So I'm kind of down a Biota podcast um, this week, even though I'm up a huge model rail radio podcast, which was like two hours and 45 minutes in the final edit. Um, so I thought, okay, well, I'll talk to this fellow last night. I should also point out, and this will come in later in the conversation, that I'm also writing a book chapter currently for a book called Origins of Design in Nature, which is it's due at the end of this month, and I'm kind of, I don't know, working my way towards that due date, basically. So um, I got on the phone with this fellow, and right off the bat, I could tell that this guy was just mentally unhinged. And... <laughs> Really, I should have known that. And I guess my it's not my instincts are worn down or that I'm not depressed or annoyed, but just would have liked to have had Brandon DiCamello, you know, uh, podcast recorded and all these kind of things. And I realized immediately 
that this was just a really bad move to actually talk to this fellow because this fellow had sent me his phone number. He'd done all these details, like repeatedly sent me his phone number <laughs> to get in contact with him so he could talk about speciation. Yeah. I thought, oh, now I'm, now I'm sucking in here. So anyway, this guy kind of continued on for an hour and something where he just wasn't listening. He was just talking and talking yeah, and talking. Yeah. I kind of butted him occasionally and said a few things like, actually, we do speciation implicitly, and he just continue on this narrative, and yeah. again, again, again. How long were you talking to this guy? About an hour and, <laughs> I don't know, an hour and something. You're minute. really a nice guy, you know? That's the well, problem my wife with said, you, is you're too nice a guy. You should have just told him that he's full of shit and hung up. Well, <laughs> the thing about it was, I said... Probably after the first 40, after about the first 30 minutes, <laughs> I tried to conclude the phone call. Yeah. <coughs> no, but I'm, I'm really quite serious. I mean, this I think is interesting because you can tell within five minutes whether somebody's listening or not. Yeah. If they're not listening, there is no conversation. I agree. I agree entirely. And, and I can't imagine how it could get past five minutes. And that's why I say you're too nice. No, I think I was. Look, I I was tired, uh, and I was okay, a bit annoyed. either too nice or too stupid. Well, or in a condition where basically it's a combination tired. of both. Yeah. So it was it was a long day yesterday, um, and yeah, I it, the whole thing just got out of control. Oh man! And, and basically, by the end of it, literally, I said, "Good talking to you." Bye. Hang up. You know, <laughs> and you haven't heard from him since then. Huh? I, I, he wrote on my. Facebook wall twice since. Thankfully, and, and, and did he get, was he angry or was no, he oblivious because he, he wasn't listening? He was so oblivious. yeah, he got to talk to me. You know, I don't know. Whatever he does after he talks yeah, to me. Next time, so. you should talk to him again. You should let me talk to him. I'll take care of this guy. <laughs> he, oh, believe me. I mean, uh, no, I, no, I'm quite serious because that was he needs somebody to talk to him about that because that's a problem for him. He's not going to get anywhere with anybody if he don't, if he never listens. So he's he's I don't know whether he's starting or what the situation is, but he he lives very close to you actually, Aaron. He's <laughs> late. Uh, he uh, he uh, yeah he's um he's trying to get his acting career started. Oh, Do you have yeah. access to Facebook? Oh yeah. Okay, open up Facebook. Go to my wall. You'll see a photo of him. Okay. Sorry. Well, let, let me amuse no, no, the audience. I, no, I've already got it. I'm, I'm here. On the wall, on your wall. Oh. Oh, Jesus. Oh, really? Yeah. That's a, so you see that's what a, I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, that's a neat picture. I like that. <laughs> you know, so, now, now the thing is, see, you never know. I mean, I can imagine a friend of mine taking a picture like that and us all having a great laugh about it. You know? He's got an entire section of like sixty <laughs> photos just like that. And the thing is the thing about it is that we shouldn't be laughing, see, about this guy. You know? Or maybe we should. I think um, we should. I hope um, you think he's gonna hear this. I don't know. Well, I'd look, I'd, I mean, honestly, he he probably will hear it as being a, an absolutely glowing review of him. You know, you're probably right. Well he probably won't even hear it. Exactly. Actually, yeah. yeah. He's just gonna Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, he made reference to one guy who actually I met, I met up in the Bay Area. So I sent him a relatively brief email, as one does, saying, um, like, um, he talks to you? Question mark? 
<laughs> Best regards, Tom Marlowe. Da, da, da. Um, and uh, he said, yeah, basically he's yeah, someone he talks who, to me. <laughs> he's someone who appears every couple of years and then disappears. So I don't know. You know, but I've anyway. had some crazy friends. And, <laughs> and I know that there are a lot of people in my life who really think I'm just as crazy as those people that I think are crazy are. Mm. And, mm. Um, you know, what can you say? <laughs> what can you say? Yeah, I don't know. But it was, it, so this was a mirror experience to me that basically I saw the potential that, um, I don't know, that I don't need to be a super fan in these circumstances. My feeling is it's, it's not, <laughs> yeah. it's not the reality at all, but basically it's just, a subconscious reflection. Well, it's part uh, of your brain damage. Listen, mm. admit it, you're brain damaged. You're fucked. You've been badly programmed. You've made a fairly nice recovery, but mm. <laughs> you're only... I've watched the German urination movie. Yes, it's all it's all downhill from there, yes, really, isn't you know, it? Well, and it's about trying to trying to recover some, uh, some sanity. Certainly. You know, and you've done a pretty good job, but I don't think you're finished yet. I don't think I'm finished either. <laughs> well, I think I'm finished, but I don't think I'm finished in that way. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's all over. You're right. <laughs> so what else? What else have I got in my notes? Oh, yeah. Now this writing origins of uh, design in nature. I think this is going to be the, the. This is I'm recording this, putting it out in the public domain. This is going to be the last chapter I write associated with anything that I have very little interest in. Because this is really hard slog. This is like going back to university. Why are you and doing it? This is the question I'm asking myself. Well, it's a Springer chapter. I kind of agreed to do it. And I'm doing it for someone who has appeared in Bioher in the past and also someone who is putting on this conference in Salt Lake City. Do they know so, you're doing this without having your heart in it? Um... Possibly. laboring under the illusion that, that you actually give a shit. I don't know. I don't know. I think the whole thing is so disconnected now, and the nature of these chapters is that they never actually achieve anything. They're not actually part of moving intellectual discourse in any given direction. They're just, I don't know, they're not even intellectual masturbation. It's just something which is in and of itself. And, and, what, and why is this book being written? Well... There's a long story here, and it goes back to a fellow by the name of Dick Gordon. And Dick Gordon is not not fundamentally, but basically has elements of in what he does. He also, however, is good friends with a fellow who's even worse than um, until starts recording telephone threats and sending them on to me. But aside from that, so Dick Gordon basically is a fellow who has been part of, on the fringes of the artificial life communities, he's an embryo biologist uh, from Canada. Uh, I've met Dick Gordon. He came through Las Vegas one time with his wife. He has then skirted around Las Vegas ever since. There is a photo of us together on Facebook when he came through very briefly. And I think the Dick is one of these characters that is just uh, kind of perennially associated with the artificial life community without actually doing any artificial life related stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so he started these origin of books, um, of which I contributed. Well, I haven't even gotten the finalization of that, but the first one was the origin of intelligence on Earth and other planets, I think, which I wrote a long uh, chapter in about um, the structure of life. 
that basically you can look at something and work out immediately whether it's living or has been living or whether it's purely synthetic because of basically a, a fractal mapping of what what life looks like. Like it's not quite perfection and it's certainly not quite imperfection. And you can actually find a mathematical equation which will describe uh, whether something is living or not living. So that's a well, living or not living given the definitions of life here on this planet. Exactly. Right? Okay. So the notion that basically there is a, almost a fractal pattern for things that are living in terms of cell structure, in terms of even large-scale living, like taking photographs of cities and these kind of things. So basically, rather than just saying that life is an ethereal thing, if you can create interrogating mathematical equations, then you basically point your camera at a scene and say that is living by structure, that is you know, once lived by structure, and that is purely synthetic. Um, and this is actually quite useful algorithmically, both in terms of kind of analyzing petri dishes. But wait a minute, wouldn't I'm I'm, I'm thinking about a, the a river delta or a mountain mm -hmm. range or mm -hmm. something that's not. I mean, it has most of the same fractal characteristics. I'm wondering how why you couldn't classify them well the thing about life is that it's not just of one level life exists as as we do our bodies do exist at many different levels so the notion is that basically we have not just a fractal structure at one level but multi-levels and the argument that i make is actually that a large portion of what we are a large portion of what living systems are is a combination of redundancy, large portions of redundancy, and then these small critical regions, like, for example, our heart versus large other portions of the rest of our body. Now, that doesn't mean that all the other parts of our body are redundant. It just means that we have this kind of sense well, of some critical... will kill you quicker than others. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. the point. But not just that. So you have this notion of redundancy, this notion of criticality, and then you have layers. And there is an emerging kind of biology which also goes into neuroscience, these things, which is a layering of three different concepts which kind of create almost a three-dimensional orthogonality associated with all these concepts. So basically my chapter built from that in the origin of... No, actually, it's the origin of life, not the origin of intelligence. Sorry, it's the origin of life on Earth and other planets. So that's what that chapter was. That is a chapter that I had probably 80% of my heart into because I thought that this was actually something that was profound and interesting and yeah. I could write about. Yeah. The origins of design in nature is just, well, I've got some interesting points about what design is and how design exists in nature and basically that design is a polluted concept and we need to start reconstructing what design actually that's, means. That's the first, that's the starting place, yes. Exactly, linguistically, yeah. yeah. So, so anyway, so I do all of that and... I just don't, it's not, it's not really interesting to me. This isn't something I feel passionately about. I'm adding probably a thousand, one and a half thousand word essay in the center of it about the notion of what design means in completely open-ended systems, like when you construct, for example, an artificial life environment and then you see things emerge from it. But really, it's not a topic that I have my heart in. It's really a topic that's constructed by someone else that I'm trying to fit yeah, my own thinking yeah. in. And this is boring. God, I have too much trouble trying to write the stuff I'm passionate about. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, basically, there's no shortage of things to write about. It's the, the problem is, and this is why Lulu and self-publishing has really become quite a, a drug for me in terms of just writing text for that, Yeah, is that I feel that I can get things. And then again, the whole notion of who actually reads, what is reading. What about blogging? 
I blogged for about three years, four years. I have quite an extensive blog, which charts out my time in the UK, bubbleinet slash log, L-O-G, for folks interested. And I did that for a long period of time because I had the sense that, I mean, I come from the Bay Area, and I had the sense that the blogosphere was, was, and I still do, was a relatively small group. I did various statistical surveys and found that the people that were kind of tastemakers in the blogosphere numbered only about a 1,000 people, of which I knew personally maybe 60. Um, but from that, none of those people, because the blogosphere was something new and exciting, and I guess the stuff that I was writing about related to my development of Noble Ape and my day-to-day life and these kind of things, and it wasn't going and meeting starlets or anything, you know, that... I guess there's a there's a distinct divergence between my existence and popular culture at some stage, and um, you know that's that's unfortunately where I sat. And I guess I wrote the blog more as a kind of therapeutic thing. I now maintain two blogs. Probably I'll maintain a third in the near future because we're restarting a artificial life blog after a year's hiatus. Um, the previous site that was hosting it went down. Um, and I do maintain blogs now, and I do post little bits and pieces on them, but it's not really the same kind of writing. I'm really quite interested in long-form writing. Yeah. I think the idea that you can convey something in probably a thousand words, which is more meaningful than what you convey in 60. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And do you I, see this as being published in paper, or are you just talking about publishing on the web? Or So there are a small fringe number of groups that still have an affinity for paper. And I think those groups are groups that I'm not part of, but sympathetic towards. Well, you can do that too, actually. Yeah. There's no reason not to use every medium available. I guess. Exactly. Yeah. And I also think yeah. the, so for example, I mean, this is another, this is another Brandon, Brandon DiCamello, uh, view. He, um, even though he, I think some portion of his work is comic related, like paper comics. But he now um, he now goes to the comic book conventions and sells his DVDs through there because he has a following people that would attend those things. Uh, and Doug Rushkoff, for a period of time in the mid nineties, uh, went to comic book conventions and he has a quite a bizarre comic book which is kind of I don't know near future biblical called Genesis. Um, which I don't know. I don't know what ever happened with that, but he, he had a uh, comic book author working with him for some period of time. And I guess my interests have always kind of ebbed and flowed. So, for example, uh, the time that you suffered through that will not be talked about again, um, that, I think, would actually work quite well in a kind of, you know, deep, uh, bizarro kind of role-playing game context with the view that it could mm. be moved into a comic book. I'm sympathetic to that. Yeah. And certainly having talked to you and having written a glossary and done a wide variety of other things with that writing, I realise that the mythology isn't conveyed particularly heavily in the text, but could be described in an abstract sense that, you know, tens of uh, dysfunctional nerds could then reconstruct at their leisure in some kind of role-playing setting. And I like the richness of that. I mean, I do pause occasionally in the role-playing game section of, you know, your standard either new or second-hand bookstore, although I don't I don't think I own I own a lot of old, well not a lot I own probably half a dozen old role-playing books, I don't think I bought I bought a few modern ones and then sold them on eBay because I just don't like the, the modern aesthetic, 
But it's a genre and an understanding. And as a child, when I say child, I mean really my mid to late teens, I used to write very elaborate role-playing universes, and I have a number of these books still to this day. So I could easily take the writing that you've read and move it into that kind of context and actually describe a greater degree of depth and have a market of, you know, maybe 10,000. Uh, and I think this is part of the this is part of the discussion we've had about model rail radio as well, that these things that we think of as being relatively niche can still be quite sustaining because there are enough people in them to, you know, to, to move in that direction. Well, the, but, yeah, see, yeah, that's exactly what I'm struggling with in, in Gendo, is I, I know there's an audience out there for it. The question mm. is, how do you structure it so that it uh, generates its own support? Yeah, I think the trick is, I mean, my, my perspective is very much multimedia, and I think there are certain groups, and this has, I guess, been my real frustration with the artificial life community. I've just come off this... Uh, nearly three-hour model rail radio show, which was recorded on the weekend. Uh, and what came back from that was that there's a relatively large and vibrant community associated with this thing, which was basically a secondary interest of mine. I guess my primary interest, as we've discussed previously, yeah. is podcasting as a form. Um, so from that, I think the question is really, do you want to remain true to your form and have, you know, 10 or 20 participants, or do you want to move slightly outside your chosen form and have a couple of thousand? And I'm sympathetic because basically I think ideas are independent of media, of moving slightly outside of my particular perspective and moving it towards a couple of thousand. I mean, in fact, Noble Ape has probably more than a couple of thousand users, uh, of which probably just under a thousand, if not a thousand, are, are frequent users. So, you know, I could move it in a, in a variety of different directions. I'm sympathetic with those kind of numbers. I think what will be interesting talking to Brandon DiCamello is the way that he kind of deconstructs these things, because certainly the way that I know him is from, uh, from a couple of his uh, associates who are interested in moving into online uh, and particularly setting up, you know, websites and moving their videos through websites and things like that. Yeah. Uh, and also creating online communities, blogs, podcasts, these kind of things. Um, and certainly I went through the basic statistics associated with, you know, AdSense revenue and how you set these things up to be zero sum and all that kind of stuff and moving it into, um, well, basically maintaining stickiness. Like we discussed last time we talked about when you construct a website, you've got to optimize based on your viewers and, work from there and it's not particularly glamorous but it's the way that you construct these things and you've got to look at your statistics almost being like a kind of stock market to use a really bad analogy but just a way that you know if you find well it's the way any scientist works exactly they me take measurements and uh, and Certainly. then use mathematical stuff to analyze it yeah and i guess the micro analysis uh I don't know, because I, I sing a very different song. I guess the thing with regards to podcasts in particular, and here really the bio to podcast and I guess what I do with Ape Reality, is that watching statistics, it's a very fickle group of people, and there's always a constant influx of new people and the kind of core group and these kind of things. I don't think it's a growth or as much of a growth that I've seen, for example, with Model Rail Radio. Um but anyway, so I'm receptive to all these things, and I'm just sick and tired of these chapters to nowhere. Uh, and I think I've gotten a great degree. I mean, for example, in parallel to writing Origin of Design in Nature, I've been writing 
uh, a very brief rules, in large part based on your uh, very constructive feedback in terms of putting in, you know, glossary and this kind of information into uh, into the uh, the book. Uh, and I think basically it's just moved me in a different direction. And I think also we've talked about my evenings and my late evenings, the kind of stuff that I read in my late evenings, and it all kind of fits into that environment. So it's something that I can be comfortable working on um, up to the point where I, I go to bed. Um, so, you know, watch the space. I think the, the main feedback that I'd, I'd like to, I guess, solicit from our last conversation is what... What does this discussion do for you in terms of your own writing, Heron, and in terms of getting your own website up and these kind of things? I mean, is it a, a potential where we could be kind of shadow boxing with one another? Well, that's, what I, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about. Actually, right now, I don't know what to think. My mind has been sort of blown asunder about what I thought I was doing and what I see is possible now. <coughs> and actually... Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about Facebook, and I've been on Facebook for probably three years, but haven't actually used it but the last few months. And I'm really blown away by by what I can do with uh, Facebook. And uh, so, with looking at that and looking and finding that I can embed links to go directly out to YouTube or to audio files or any sort of thing, that this it's easy to create an environment that actually goes out to the whole world, probably, uh, I don't know whether it's going to be, you know, what technology it is, but it probably can be done completely through the web. And, uh, again, the, the I've had four or five books in me for 30 years, but they overlap a great deal, and I've never been able to weed them out or figure out how to how to do them. And, and I, when I look at the multimedia possibilities and the um, you know uh, linkings possible, I realize all of it can go into a single sort of database with a, a you know with a a way to navigate through it without there having to be a single way. And that it's open-ended. There's really no way to even talk about where, where it is and where it's not, since it can take links to YouTube or any place, uh, and it can be re-manipulated by the user too. So I I'm, guess my concern with with Facebook in particular is the notion of temporality with regards to information, and certainly this is very distinct from what we do with podcasts, particularly podcasts that persist. My concern with Facebook is that it is very much for this kind of stuff, is that it's very much a temporal medium. So, right. Yeah, but it's in, perfect for that. I, every time I find a, an interesting link in my research, I just put it up on the wall. Certainly. You know, and uh, some people, you know, and some people are following it and they go and look at the stuff and I get notes from them once in a while. Not, but that to me is earth shaking <laughs> to be able to share like that. I agree, but that's different than the mechanisms needed to create an intellectual movement. Oh, yeah, you, that's, well, no, this is just one little thing, that's all. No, it's, yeah, I agree. It, it's, it's, it's just this one thing, though. And that's really, I mean, that didn't exist, but, you know, for what, the last year or two? How long has the wall been around? Mm, I was in Australia when they set up the wall, so March last year. Yeah, okay. Um, that's, I mean, that's an that's an amazing thing, and I, you know, and I look at my feed and I see what all the people, my friends, are putting on their wall. 
you know, and I scan that stuff every day, and I see a couple of really interesting things every day from just looking at that stuff. It's amazing. Hmm. I would agree. I think the temporality thing and the immediacy is is two very positive, well, basically the same thing. But the my concern with regards to Facebook in terms of creating, it's very good for creating social movements, but the social movements need to have agreed upon... I guess starting. Well, I'm not ele- sure. What, why do you say it's good at creating social movements? I, uh, give me an example of a social okay. movement I, that's I good have, at creating. Okay, I have a number of examples of this. Um, I have a. Uh, have you ever seen um, the death of Fred Hampton? No. It's a movie about a Black Panther. It's a documentary yeah. about Black Panther Fred Hampton right. being killed in Chicago in the late '60s, and through the movie and i'm going to get the fellow's name wrong so fred hampton uh was uh killed in the late 60s and there was a movie made called the murder of fred hampton in the movie there was another black panther by the name of bobby rush Mm -hmm. bobby rush is now a democratic i want to say congressman he could be a senator uh, in the great state of Illinois, and he is the antithesis of the person who he was in the film. Mm-hmm. He has become a corrupt figurehead of what I think <laughs> is one of the most corrupt states in the U.S., and really the antithesis of... Uh, well, he never really was... I mean, Fred Hampton was just amazingly charismatic. Uh, his uh, oratory style, his whole persona was just going to be... He's far more powerful than I think, you know, the, the, I mean, I don't necessarily want to get into this too much, but I do feel that the civil rights movement has been heavily watered down and the true heroes of the civil rights movement are not the ones that are taught about. And I think Fred Hampton is one of those figures. I think he's a phenomenally uh, powerful individual who was killed by a, a corrupt police system and it's a phenomenally powerful movie it's now all available via youtube as well so i created have you read a, any of eldridge cleaver's stuff uh yes i have yes i have uh he's <laughs> more fractured i think fred hampton well, he's made quite smarter. a turnaround <laughs> i think fred hampton is far smarter than any of the uh, emergent people who survived the black panther movement yeah. anyway so i created a facebook group called remind bobby rush of fred hampton And I created this Facebook group about uh, two years ago. I said that the people who join this Facebook group should send Bobby Rush each year on the anniversary of Fred Hampton's death a DVD copy of the murder of Fred Hampton to remind this congressman who he was back in the 60s. And... I have done probably half a dozen other things like that on Facebook. Okay, and and but what and what has come of it? Well, what has come of it is that I have been connected with a wide variety of eclectic, predominantly African American activists who are of like mind. Are they actually sent? No, are they actually sending DVDs to to well, Rush or? Uh, uh, or, I mean, is that, or is the point of it just to get you connected with some interesting people, or are you trying to actually send DVDs it's an to emotion. Rush? I'm trying to send uh, DVDs to Rush. It's an emotion represented in a movement. And this is the thing that fascinates me about Facebook, that there is the ability 
So, for example, through the healthcare debate, there was this ridiculous narrative. Wait a minute, I want to go back to this thing okay. because I, this is something maybe I can use. I'm trying, but I'm trying to figure out how this works. You put up, a, you start a Facebook page called what? Remind Bobby Rush of Fred Hampton. Okay, and then you wrote up some description about what this was all about. This group has been set up to send Democratic Congressman Bobby Rush ah, his yeah, link let me, let me DVDs of. Uh, murder of Fred Hampton on December 4th each year to remember Fred Hampton. Congressman Rush's indelible connection to Fred Hampton and to keep this piece of American history remembered. I've also got links then to the four YouTube clips of the murder of Fred Hampton. Now, the membership of this group is not particularly high, but the people that have joined this group are of like-minded folk. Let's just say. So anyway, this is the notion of... What's the the name of this group? Remind Bobby Rush of Fred Hampton. Community interest history. There's Bobby Rush and there's Fred Hampton. Bobby Rush as he is now and Fred Hampton as he was then. Yeah. Anyway, so this not particularly well joined, but a large group, well, a group of people of which probably only six are people that I know. Um... So this is an emotion represented in a group, which I don't actively publicize, but exists out there for people to discover. And you just put, wait, so you put this up how long ago? Two years ago. Okay, and, and then that, you did nothing other than just make put it, it available? Yep. And then, but your friends probably all knew. I mean, I, but I mean. Let me see look. the group and let me count how many of these people are my friends, because I think it's about six of the of the people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's less than six. It's th- it's four of the people uh-huh. are people I know. Okay, and the other ones are just people who found it. And have you had any communication with these other? Yeah, people? no. A number of them have befriended me, yeah. and a number of them are, are very socially conscious people. And actually, just still. And exactly how did they find? How did they find their way there? Through, I guess they were looking for Fred Hampton related stuff and found oh, so this. So they just did a search and <laughs> okay, all right. So ah, this is a, okay. So people actually do search. Yes. Okay. All right. So I have never ex- thought of that. I never do that. <laughs> <laughs> so the other example I wanted to give was through this ridiculous healthcare debate in the U.S., which was just so, you know, you can have you can have a blue car or a blue car so long as it's a blue car. This whole notion that what was being offered the American public was socialist healthcare, oh, completely privatized socialist healthcare was just beyond... So I thought, this is exactly... The There's no was, way you can underestimate <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the intelligence of, so, of Americans. Here's the interesting thing. So this idea of socialist health care was basically the same as, as compulsory car insurance. So I said, um, <laughs> stop America. Let me see if I can find this link so I can read it out to uh, our loyal listeners. Socialist... Okay. Uh, against socialist government-run car insurance, and I, put it, I actually put it into Google. This only this is not as heavily populated, but I found a beautiful picture of a car with a sickle painted on the side of it, and put it up there. So this meme didn't quite carry as well as as Bobby Rush did. Um, but anyway, uh, no, so but you know, the, you're playing in some very interesting epistemological territory. <laughs> You know, this, this is, is yeah, yeah, yeah. So what it's about is it about taking a raw, emo- and there have been a few others. There's, there's a fellow, there's a science communicator in Australia 
who is basically sponsored by a wide variety. I mean, he runs as a green candidate, but he all his talks are sponsored by the coal industry. And he's given a really like, he's just completely out of whack. His whole public persona and private funding sources are completely skewed. And he is someone who I created a private page about with the view that I may float it to, you know, tell him that being a corporate speaker and a public speaker on science was not acceptable and basically listed all the corporate speaking events that he had done in the past year and also audio clips because he talks on radio, both both um, Australian public radio and also the BBC in the UK, but audio clips of the things that he had said and then direct links to the speaking engagements that he had done that basically showed that he wasn't giving a public account of science at all. He was just basically reiterating what his um, you know, paymasters were, were feeding. And I think that is the movement. I just By that point, it was just exhausting because that one would have taken off. He's got a huge following on Facebook and people that had searched for his name would have found this page as well. And I, I erred against that one just because I've got way, as, as I described my life, I have too many tongs in the fire already yeah, and this yeah. just got to explode. Bobby Rush, Fred Hampton, the FBI, these are entities I can deal with. Um, I don't know. I, that was, the other thing is that we share, we're both on Australian well, scientists. Let me, let me ask you, I, I'm really interested. You know, like I say, I, I'm new to Facebook, really, and I just figured the wall out. So, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm excited. Now, I'm, I'm just trying to think, how can I use this information that I'm learning um, to create you can basically any subject under the sun, mm. anything is just a set of words. And, and yes. what, are, what, what is it you're creating? It's called a group. Yes. Okay. And I did, and there's some menu heading, I guess, somewhere, and I can create a group somehow. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to to look into this. <laughs> this could be very interesting. So I'm trying to think what else. What other? I've created probably half a dozen groups. These are the two that come to mind. Uh, and, oh, I mean, I created a group associated with a fellow's podcast in the UK that got quite successful. He stayed off Facebook for maybe three, four years, and then when he joined Facebook, I passed on the group's membership to him um, just because I was a fan of his podcast, basically. Uh, what else? What are the good groupings? And I maintain, obviously, Biota and Model Rail Radio, and the, there's an extended Noble 8 Facebook group that covers basically everyone who's ever had any influence or inkling of, of, on Noble 8, um, which was quite large. Um, but I guess the idea with this, the funny thing is, um, so take the Biota group, for example, which I think is about, I want to say 200, it's probably about 180 members, maybe even less. Okay, so roughly 150 people, not as many as I thought. It, it, I thought it was bigger. Um this is still a relatively sizable fraction of a number of the other important technology. So what you could do with this is actually have a weighting of popularity. So you take, for example, there's this website called Dig uh, that has a podcast associated with it and various celebrities. The Dig fan club is only 800 people. So you've got 150 versus 800. I mean, you get kind of a fractional size associated with these comparative entities. And, yeah. How passionately well, you know, I'm not sure it makes any difference at this point. This is all brand new territory. You know, we're not really sure what we can do with this stuff yet. Mm, well, you this know? is this is 
Well, yeah, I'd argue that there's probably some of that. I mean, I think, but then again, there's also a certain degree of maturity with regards to aspects of the medium. Facebook has, as you described, the wall. It's Facebook's leisure and liberty to change these things at a whim. Yeah, that's problematic. (laughs) Yeah, you just, you find something you really like and then they decide to change it. (laughs) And this is why I think you always, and this is the advice I'll give to you, you always need to have your own site that has a certain degree of rich content. Yeah. If nothing more, that if you're providing links in your feed, if you're providing links back to your own site with yeah, your then, own yeah. content, then, you know, it's going to be a bit superior. Well, yeah, I can't do that now, but at some point, yes, that's going to mm. have to be... Well, yes. So forums and blogs and all these kind of new media darling technologies, I just there's a fellow I'm working with to create an artificial life forum, and basically... It's been something I've been talking about for about nine months now, maybe even more than that. I wanted to do it on Biota originally, and Bruce David didn't want to do it on the Biota site, so I've created a separate site and given this guy admin rights to create a forum. And I don't know. I mean, I think all of these things take a certain amount of maintenance, and they become a thing in and of themselves. And the other thing is you don't want these things to become introverted. You want them to be um, extroverted, maybe the wrong term, but you you want to... Not only foster a community, but also welcome others to join. Yeah. And I think that's the real difficulty, that it's very easy to create a community. And then there needs to be something to do once they've joined. Certainly, yeah. Which isn't just Joining introverted. Joining is a community. dead end. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there are, there are a number of interesting options here, but... Um, I guess my view, this has always been the distinction between your perspective and my perspective in terms of I will find the others, go and find other podcasts, other people, get them involved and see if there's any overlap or any discourse, which, I mean, I guess I guess through what we're doing, you know, there's an element to find the others there. Uh, but my, my perspective has always been you find groups that have like-minded demographics, approach them, integrate with them and see if there's any overlap. The only real successes I've had with that have been, uh, well, with artificial life with open source. I mean, the open source artificial life overlap is very great. So as soon as I, you know, went out on, there's a, there was a program called, well, there's still a, a long-running podcast called Floss Weekly um, that is, uh, you know, has a, a number of listeners. And when I appeared on Floss Weekly, it was probably the largest boost, far larger than any uh, online article, news scientist, uh, New York Times, what have you. None of that basically improved the listeners to Biota like the Floss Weekly interview did because there was just a huge van between people that had developed open source and had some interest in artificial life. Uh, and you really need to find groups which are almost overlapping and see what comes in terms of the linking of those groups. Uh, but it's a, it's you know it's a long term it's a long term project. I think the thing with all of this is you're in, you know you're in for ten, fifteen, twenty years worth of work minimum, just to well, get a computer. It's, it's yeah. called a lifetime. Certainly, <laughs> is what yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah. And I think the the main thing also, particularly if you provide a richness of information, is that um, people oftentimes treat it like cake. You know, it's a sometimes food, it's a sometimes intellectual pursuit, and that's certainly what I found with Biota. For every person who downloads and listens to a Biota podcast religiously, there will probably be 10, if not 20 people, 
who listen to it occasionally or keep a back catalogue and listen to it in spurts and starts and these kind of things. And I think certainly the kind of content, maybe Model Rail Radio included, but the kind of content that I've tried to create with Biota has always been a certain richness, uh, degree of depth, I guess, that wouldn't, you wouldn't normally find on the likes of NPR or these kind of things in terms of just the kind of listener that would want to consume it on a, a regular basis. And I think that's always the difficulty when you create information is you can make something which is relatively lightweight, easily palatable, and probably greatly consumable, or you can make information which will basically appeal to that exactly that 1% that you want to reach out to. And that's the difficulty. It's not always an either-or, but it's pretty usually an either-or. You can do both-and if you want to, but you need to be conscious of it and, and... Well, yeah, it, it changed my expectations. I mean, that was, it took me a long time to figure that out, that the audience I really want right now mm. is probably pretty small. Mm. You know? And, um, but I'll be happy if I can reach enough of them to, um, to make it feel satisfying. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. It's a strange phenomenon. It really is. I think they're out there. I mean, I really get the sense through this medium that it has a means of reaching people that no other... I mean, I think you mentioned blogs. I think blogs are useful for people in a lunch break. I really don't know that many people. My brother, who who has a, a podcast... Well, not a podcast, it's a radio show, which is also released in podcast form of his own. But he is a heavy consumer of blogs. It might be a generational thing. I certainly yeah, have a lot of RSS feeds. I don't even know anybody who... Yeah. Yeah, I've I've never really been interested in text. Yeah, at least not yeah in, in chat and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I also find them just really. I mean, it's not it may be an attention span thing, but I just find the kind of writing that you get in blogs typically doesn't hold you like you know other forms. Well, but I haven't looked at enough to just to. Um, I mean, that's true for me. I mean, that's the thing is that's true of ninety five percent of writing, no matter where you go. It's bullshit. Mm. It's an even worse problem in um, the web, in the Matrix. Certainly. You know, it's mostly bullshit. And there are probably some gems out there, but I don't know any of them. Mm. Mm. I think it's, uh, yeah, I I certainly, having, I mean, we're talking 2002 through to, I guess I probably stopped blogging about 2006. And, yeah, I just, the form I wasn't particularly impressed with. And also the people I was trying to talk to didn't really read blogs, although the feedback that I got from my friend at Apple, Dr. Ernie, was that if I do technical things with Noble Ape in the future, I have now a special technical blog for Noble Ape, which is pretty poorly maintained, but, you know, that's out there to to publish technical bulletins, which apparently Apple will read. Um but yeah, I just don't like the form. I think the podcast is certainly a a form which isn't ideal, but one that I'd be more receptive to. And certainly, even if people aren't listening to every single one, the right kind of people are listening to the occasional one. So I can't complain. Well, I don't even know where it's going. That's that's the fun part, I guess, or the scary part, or both. Mm. Is It's not clear to me at all. <clears throat> it's like, yeah, riding a wave or something. I'm hoping that I'm riding the wave, <laughs> you know, but just how big it is and just where it's going, uh, I'm not, you know, I've never been on this wave before. 
certainly. Well, it's a new wave, but I think the discussion associated with how YouTube replaced podcasts and these kind of things has died back a little bit. I think people understand the placement of podcasts. The thing that interests me is the wide variety of public radio stations that actually have dead airtime. And if podcasters can get out there and put their stuff on those kind of medium and use it as a means of getting people into podcasting or at least listening, yeah. I think potential there. They tried to do that with Sirius Radio, but I've never really liked the Sirius Radio model. Uh, and I think there's probably a lot more, uh, although a lot of these stations, you know, they've got as your uh, Roy of Hollywood, you know, the are uh, actually taking that that dare time and using it for their own directions. I yeah. actually looked him up after our last conversation. Yeah get more of a sense of the man did you see a picture of him oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> you know i should do that myself I, I i can hardly remember is he as i described him uh, i wouldn't have thought he's he's a lot more um kind of yogi than he is uh motorcycle angel. yeah <laughs> really but he just could have been the photo he has a cd of organ music available on amazon and it is very much more a kind of yogi photo than it is a hell's angels photo but the beard's certainly there. I mean, it could just be his expression. He could have had a particular kind of expression that he took that in that photo, which isn't represented in his normal appearance. Uh, but no, it, it certainly um, conveyed a, a time and a place and a sense of the man. Um, and yes, I don't know. I don't really get a sense of what people that listen to Terence McKenna look like. I, aside from endless Burning Man photos of the... Uh, you know, the various salons that have been put on at Burning Man. Uh, have you ever had any interest in going to Burning Man? Oh, I've had an interest in going there, but not enough of one to actually go there. <laughs> I was in Reno while Burning Man was on, and people would joke with me that there was an influx of Australians in Reno currently to go yeah. to Burning Man. Yeah. And the point that I made to them was if I wanted to get naked and go out into the desert, I'd just take my clothes off and wander into my backyard, you know? <laughs> I wouldn't have to pay $300 for the privilege. Well, I don't think that's quite... Well, anyway, go on. <laughs> I think there, there may be some other stuff going on there. Possibly. Who knows? <laughs> I don't know whether it's enlightening or not. Ironically, when I was probably 22, when I moved to the Bay Area, it was probably the only time where I thought about going to Burning Man. Um, and just because it was something to do and a group of people I knew were going there. Um, ironically, when they came back, I got all their damaged computer equipment and repaired that and had computers for the time following. So it was a strange kind of thing. A lot of the computer equipment I had had been to Burning Man, but I actually hadn't been to Burning Man. Um, but, yeah, I, it's a funny thing. I just don't have any... The thing is, um, Bruce Damer tells stories of... Um, like dust storms on Mars and on the moon and these kind of things, which seems strange without air, but apparently they have dust storms. Um, and he describes the fact that the only, one of the few places where you get these kind of eroding dust storms on the planet is the Nevada Playa, that uh, basically you can get exactly the same kind of conditions where you have 100-mile-an-hour winds and this particular dust that just cuts people down. Yeah. Thankfully, they've missed that. They've had some pretty bad dust storms, I think, maybe a couple of years ago. But thankfully, they've actually missed the um, Category 9 or whatever dust storms <laughs> that are the killers. Um, but I don't know. I can't understand why they wouldn't... I mean, I understand in terms of law enforcement and things, but I can't understand. There are so many nice places in the U.S. where you could hold gatherings of like-minded folk, and the idea of doing it in 
such an environment. I don't know. And charging money, I think the whole capitalist notion of Burning Man really, I don't particularly like either. I, well, it's it's you know it's it's what it is. It's for some people. I guess so. Yeah. You know, yeah. I can I can appreciate it. Uh, you know, I can see that that would be. Um, you know, I mean, I know people who go there all the time. You know, yeah. Well, who go and and uh, they seem to always have a good time. But not many philosophers among them. <laughs> well, this is the notion of the salon. They um, they ran salons there. I'm not sure if they've done it every year for the past six or seven years, but they've done it maybe three or four times. And Lorenzo goes up with his audio recorder, and you have people like Alex Gray and these kind of things, um, and a wide variety of younger guys who I don't know. I don't I don't even really get a sense of what the modern psychedelic community really is as a kind of intellectual force. But they, you know, they they stand around and pass around the mic and do various things. And I don't know, the, some of the discussions that have come from the salon have been interesting. I mean, my favourite Bruce Damer talk came from, I think, his first appearance in such environment, but only because, as we've described on probably our first or second show, he deconstructed his early childhood at an orphanage, which I think gave me profound insight um, in working with him for the past 12-odd years. Um, so I do understand that people do go to Burning Man who do have intellectual interests, but I'd much rather see, as we described maybe four or five shows ago, this notion of the trialogues. I'd love to see trialogues reemerge and have people having active discussions and being able to go and at least witness that. And certainly what I've talked about with Bruce Damer is ideally last time I went up to the Bay Area and he wasn't there while I was there. But restarting these kind of talk sessions, I mean, we talked about doing it with this very podcast, because I think the ability to have real meaningful discourse between you know, three three people with slightly different perspectives, but all le- leading towards the same goal, is kind of a fascinating means of discourse. What is the goal? The goal is basically to uh, if you have three people that come from different areas of knowledge they will have, in general, perhaps slightly skewed, but different parts of a puzzle. And I think what I found fascinating listening to a number of the trialogues is firstly that the it's the misinterpretations of the various participants and the resolution of these misinterpretations, ah. in fact, is the interesting thing. Ah, yes. So it's not... So I guess the sense You that, really are. That's good. That's really quite an observation. Yeah, so... Uh-huh. I'm sorry. Go on. That's that's a real nice distinction because I think you're the the substance of the arguments is not important as the form of them. Exactly. And once you see the form, you don't ever need to concern yourself with the substance of stupidity again. <laughs> you know, you can. Yeah, that's the essence of Gendo. Yeah. So that's what I like about the trial format. And I think also my frustration is that the the whole notion of what it is Excuse to be... Excuse me. Have you, uh, you're talking about the recording is that you turned me on to. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it possible? I mean, can you actually identify specific instances of where misinterpretations got resolved and it was explicated? It's a pretty frequent theme, actually. Well, what I'm thinking is, is if you could give time codes on any of those things, or oh you know, that those would be very useful training tools uh, for to, including in my Gendo thing or whatever. I, I could go back through the archives and... How many are there? There's uh, How many uh, recordings are there? 
I don't know too many. <laughs> I can go back and certainly I would be receptive to the names of some of them. I can't think of any off the top of my head. Well, not, not, not right now. I'm just saying, see, one of the things I'm always interested in is stuff off the Internet that can be used as teaching tools. Certainly. And, and those edited down to the exact moments of, mm. of insight. The and, problem and with exact moments in this context is that in order to build up uh, the kind of collective misinterpretations, and particularly the way that it they would be speak. A job, yes. Yeah, it takes. It would take a, a lot of editing. <laughs> well, I don't even know whether it's editable. I mean, that's my concern. That basically, if the first thirty minutes, ten minutes, a speaker is constructing how they have mischaracterized each other, you need to have that degree of intimacy to get to the point yeah, where be right. it's resolved. Okay. Uh, I. I don't think it can be summarized in that light. However, they, they are interesting. It might be, though. It might be that, that there may be well, cases. Anyway, it's something for me, anyway, yeah, to What does it even need to, to be summarized, to? though, in this context? I mean, I think potentially the the lack of summary actually illustrates it's a bit like, uh, you know, a, a long-form comedic story. Are, are you that familiar you familiar with uh, Edward de Bono's work on thinking skills and all that stuff? <sighs> He's a Brit. Guy. You're testing me here. I don't know. Well, I, well, anyway, yeah. He, he uh, I'm trying to remember uh, the name of his course. It was the Edward de Bono School of Thinking. And he, <laughs> well, anyway, he made a big point in his thinking lessons to use uh, instances that are sort of grossly oversimplified in order to focus on the nature of, of you know, like I'm saying, the, the actual application of a, of a principle. And, and so we always wanted to use examples that were sort of silly uh, so that you wouldn't confuse those with something in the real world. God, I'm not yes. explaining this well. Anyway. I understand uh, what you're saying. No, I understand what you're saying. So, and so I the think... point was to focus on, on, a, on a particular uh, methodology of using language is what it really gets down to uh, mm. in a simplified environment so that you can identify the process. And so that's what I'm thinking about in terms of this. What you just nailed, what you named, is something I hadn't actually named before. The idea that uh, somehow an interpretation or a misin or a set of interpretations don't mesh well, yeah. and then and at first that's not recognized as a problem, and then gradually or maybe not gradually, somebody gets the insight. Wait a minute, <laughs> we, we've made a mistake somewhere, and then the resolution of that. Certainly. That, that is an important process. That's and I think that's, yeah. Yeah. That's, certainly, that's certainly, I think, the essence of the trialogue form. Yeah. The thing that interests me about it is that I, and I, I, we've talked about TED, it's not TED. I think, I just don't see, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's my own perspective of history and my own particularly pers perverse perspective of history but I see at times previously in history, there were people who were great thinkers and great dialoguers that were able to have some form of discourse. I don't see that existing in contemporary culture. I don't see the skills that are even really described in the trialogues existing. It seems to be that everything has just become almost kind of a caricature. I think the conversations are going on, but they're private. And, Possibly. And we're not, uh, in fact, I think that's a, one of the sins, <laughs> is, is that the conversation needs to change. 
people need to be talking about things of interest and importance rather than what they watched on TV last night. But I think the there will always be... I mean, I, I go back to Bertrand Russell because, I guess, I don't know, some affinity with the fellow. Um, and I get the sense that just in the past there were these thinkers who would have public dialogues, who would go out there, and I don't see that in... I mean, you you have half a dozen people that speak in public, but the stuff that they say is so shallow and so frustratingly, you know, just flawed. Well, that I, have you heard uh, Noam Chomsky talk? Yeah, I, I, I've heard, and I think Noam Chomsky's <coughs> stuff in general is... Well, I mean, you get infuriated with Noam Chomsky, so you know where I'm coming well, from. Well, I don't like his linguistics, but I, I like his his social analysis. And I think it's whether you agree with him or not, uh, he's, he speaks relatively straightforwardly. <laughs> and I find his social analysis to be pretty bourgeois. And also, if you construct elements of it, his whole discussion about how he doesn't pay tax or there were periods in life where he effectively evaded tax for long periods of time, you can't evade tax for long periods of time and then complain about social structures that require taxation. I think that's <laughs> fundamentally paradoxical. And there are other things well, that I... Well, he's a human being. I mean, well, he, you know, I know, but, he was brain damaged too. Give true, him a brain. I know, but, <laughs> well, no, this is exactly the point that you're saying. I mean, this is my point, you know. <laughs> Either you give him a break or you listen to him and you think of him yeah. as a thinker. Well, I, mean, I listen to him. Well, okay, yeah. All right, so I on. guess my frustration with Noam Chomsky is if this is the if this is the example of our age we need to really either press flush ah, and find some new ah. speakers or mm. because my frustration with Noam Chomsky is none of his he hasn't understood that the way to rectify problems is through a true deconstruction of history it's not about talking about the way things should be oh, it's yeah, about talking I'm, about how well, so it's certainly not what he's doing because if what he's doing worked we'd be living in a new exactly, world <laughs> exactly that's exactly the point you know yeah. and at some stage you need to realize that if it thinks if if you are well, just talking yeah. Yeah. in so anyway, I yeah, don't think... he's brain damaged, I agree. <laughs> yeah. But the, the disturbing thing is that the Noam Chomsky's of this world also rule the airwaves with regards to the dialogue currently. Oh, and but they my, don't. That, I mean, he certainly doesn't. You, when, when was the last time he, anybody ever saw him on mainstream media? That's a very good point. Um, uh, nobody knows. Most people don't even know who the hell he is. Okay, so okay, so you're right. The pundits that exist on mainstream media aren't even worthy of Glenn Beck. Dialogue. <laughs> I was talking to my wife today actually about gold and this whole phenomena of gold and gold. Uh, the fact that there is a large, well, a group of the population that is putting their money into gold and bullets currently. <laughs> and they're an increasingly large population yeah, that yeah. Is, is putting their money into gold and bullets. And I said to my wife, how, how does the money that goes into gold and bullets go back to pay regular people? Like the gold, the people that buy gold, the, the gold speculators, I mean, they're, they're small numbers of people. They hold on to the money. They're not going and, and buying food. Uh, to the extent. So there's this whole notion of these things that are supposed to be about promoting security and survival that are actually just kind of constipating well, the economy. Yeah, they're, those... 
and it's a it's a it's a feeding frenzy currently. I mean, the stuff I listen to uh, podcasts on the far right primarily because I like uh, a, I like a post apocalyptic narrative on occasion, uh, and I listen to them with that view. But the the notion of uh, primacy associated with firearms and gold, I just find really quite quite confusing. And I guess Glenn Beck is not not really a part of that, except. I heard from one of your previous guests that he had some connection with gold speculation. I'm not being. Oh, I have no idea. I don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I guess the, the whole notion of fear and disillusionment and just uh, it's yeah, it's a, it's. What are you talking? Anyway. The general human condition. It's those language monkeys. It's 98 percent of human beings. So, Mr. Chomsky, how do we change them? Um, we we work on the children. It's too late for anybody <laughs> over the age of eighteen. They're already yeah. brain dead. Okay. I mean, not everyone. I mean, there are. It, it's not impossible for an adult to wake up, but mm. it's statistically not likely. Yeah. Anyway, and so I, my interest is yeah. so, returning to the trialogues as opposed to Glenn Beck. Well, my interest is uh, is finding well, the others. I, no, I, actually, I want to go because this idea of the great orators and the great mm-hmm. uh, thinkers. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that idea. Um, I'm not quite sure why I'm not quite sure that I'm... Is it too elitist for you? Do you think there's an no, element of elitism uh, in that? Oh, there's certainly that, but that doesn't bother me. I'm an <laughs> arrogant asshole, so, you know, that's not a problem. Mm-hmm. But, uh, no, wait, no, <clears throat> it's about... Yeah, what's wrong with that is all the people who aren't great thinkers... That's the problem, is it draws the line very clearly between the people that are actually thinking and the rest of humanity, which is 99%. And what I'm suggesting is that as long as 99% of the population are a bunch of unconscious language monkeys, I don't think it makes much difference what the elite thinkers are thinking. They're going to have to deal with that 99% of those language monkeys at some point. And... Because the language monkeys are destroying the planet. Mr. Russell, it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> I mean, I think like that. He, yeah. No, I know, but the, the point about that is that he was talking to people that would argue back and say it's turtles all the way down. I mean, I think this yeah. is the problem that basically, the, the, whilst there is the idea Why is that, that a the, problem? That these people are existing in elites, they weren't. They went out and actually talked to what you describe as the unconscious language monkeys and got them in dialogue. Did and they? I, think they? I don't, I mean, wh- where did they do that? They had public lectures. They gave public lectures that actually had question and answer sessions and interaction. Okay, the, and when was effect- this? What, what centuries are we talking about now? The 1950s, I think, probably the probably through the 1960s as well. Ah, the 19. Okay, I thought we were going back no, in history. No, not at all, not at all. And I think. The, and who not, are you talking about specifically? Well, Bertrand Russell in this case, but I don't think these things exist anymore. The kind of conversations and mm. discourse, and particularly the. I mean, when you talk about Noam Chomsky in particular. Oh no, I didn't. Re- I didn't. I misunderstood. I guess what you're talking about mm. uh, to bring him up. Because that, that's irrelevant. Uh, <laughs> so I guess the, it's just about. an yeah. idea of reaching yeah. out and public discourse and an idea that there are actual intellectuals that communicate. Who would you consider uh, on the, on the, a par with Bertrand Russell today? Who's out there? I, well, 
honestly, in the same context, I can't think of anyone. And I, I search for these people. Uh, I think there are various... Well, what about Ray Kurzweil? No. Wow. Uh, far... Look... As well, someone, I know, but I'm trying to figure out let why... Me explain, you no, let me explain why you... No, you've raised Ray Kurzweil. Yeah. Let me answer you. Um, if you are to talk to Ray Kurzweil, as in on a Biota podcast, for example, he requires a copy of the questions up front, editorial rights on the audio, which means that you surrender yeah, I the... Understand. Yeah, but that's completely separate from what he's talking about. No, it's not that. at all. No, it's not. No, the whole notion of open dialogue means open dialogue. It means you can ask the hard questions, yeah, make points, and have that I conversation. Understand, I understand and if you, that. if you don't have that notion of open dialogue, if yeah. it's a closed conversation, a completely controlled conversation, then how are these people intellectuals? How are they intellectuals? If they can't be argued with, I don't if know, well, you ask a hard question, then it's completely created. It's all part of an ego of that individual, and it's a well, cult I of ego. Projecting, to it. I think that may be true, but I think uh, it not. It's not. It ain't necessarily so. And I don't know since I don't know Ray Kurzweil. But uh, I think what you're doing is looking at him and imagining what it would have to be like for you to act like he does. No, it's not that at all. It's the notion of there are, there are uh, well, for example, I'm, I'm, I believe we are post-singular. So his whole uh, construction and belief system and the books that he has sold, I think, are based on a fallacious understanding of 1980s computer technology. If he and I were to have an open dialogue about this, he would lose... I, 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 none of his points have any degree of primacy. The claims from authority that he makes associated with his OCR research in, what, the 80s, I, it just, it's meaningless to me. I would talk to him about actual things that exist in the present day and the fact that he's created a cultist movement to do with something in the future that has already... It's already occurred. Now, I don't understand why... And same thing with Richard Dawkins. I'd say to him, how come you give awards to, you know, people that deny uh, human-affected climate change? What about your views associated with setting up uh, trusts which basically rip off the public school system? How can you have, on one side, uh, an improved public education and on the other side a group of privatized trusts which are basically ripping off public education. These are the hard questions for these intellectuals, or intellectuals in inverted commas. They never get into any discussion associated with these people, uh, associated with these concepts. These people are just immune from that kind of discussion because they live in these, these created uh, bubbles of, of producing these books that their followers buy and they engage in controlled discourse, but they're not intellectuals. They're people that are created by PR companies and maintained through these pseudo-spats that they have in one case with creationists. And really, honestly, I'm not clear who Ray Kurzweil's enemies are, but uh, I think there are a good number of scientists that think that he's not particularly connected with the real world. So I don't know. I just see these, these people as cultists rather than intellectuals. Um, and they're not having any dialogue with uh, with the people that I know or, you know, or myself, and both of these people have bends into what I do. Kurzweil's an interesting one, because I have a number, as with Dawkins, I have a number of mutual friends with the fellow, 
Uh, and everything that I hear about Kurzweil indicates to me that he is very scared of, uh, of what is actually going on currently and getting into any kind of discussion associated with contemporary computer technology, contemporary society, or, you know, real direct phenomena that exist. Yeah, uh, yeah. and it's, it's always it's, been, well, I understand, well, yeah, I agree, I feel the same way about many things <laughs> like that, that he avoids talking about. Things exactly. that um, that might upset some of his patrons. So let's let's have let's have public discourse. Let's let these uh, emperors show their nudity and let's move on. I mean, I can't. That's my frustration with contemporary. Well, but things. then, but then you've already said it's hopeless because you don't, you said there isn't anybody. Well, I'd like to see. My hope is that my generation, or as you say, the young people, can uh, can emerge from this and actually create our own group of. Thinkers that are are honed in, uh, you know, who are polymaths and honed in discourse and able to interact and produce writing and insights which are actually useful. And unfortunately, and I think a large part of it is the creation of um, uh, William Morris Agency and um, the fellow in New York who holds the salons, who Kurzweil and Dawkins are both part of whom I think of. Actually, ironically, he's their he's their book agent. Yeah, um, Brockman or something. Yeah, I think. Bo- Bo- yeah, Brockman. Something like uh, that. Yeah, Brockman. So, yeah, the, this the control- reality club. Exactly. Yeah. So, this control of intellectual discourse by these agents. Uh, let's just let's just move well, on. That's from- all part of the past again. That's exactly. That's, what that's exactly what my see, I, I still but think, but I think I think you can divorce all that bullshit from the essence of some of the ideas they're talking about. If you talk about the singularity as a concept, if you talk about the singularity as it applies to technology, I, or as it applies to the legal system or the financial system or a wide variety of social systems. I don't even know what clearly, you mean by the singularity. So. Well, the singularity means that basically the entity uh, attains a degree of control or uh, intelligence that is greater than that of humanity. That, that's meaningless, though. I mean, to say that, I mean, what that actually means at this point is nothing. That's exactly my point, because we're yeah. post-singular. That's yeah. exactly my point. Well, whatever so, post or pre or whatever is irrelevant, as far as well, I'm no, concerned. No, it's completely relevant because you have a group of people that wander around saying this thing's going to happen in the future. We can't study what's going on currently because all this stuff is going to happen in the future. If it's already happened, we're already there. We need to know where we are currently. I mean, it's a bit like saying there are no roads, there's no direction. Let's just wander around with our eyes closed versus let's actually create a road map and start doing some analysis of where we are currently. Well, that sounds like a very wise thing to do. Absolutely. <laughs> I wouldn't quarrel with that. So anyway, that's my perspective. And uh, I, I think, you know, my hope is that uh, the children or the thinkers or what have you will, uh, will emerge. Well, but if there aren't anybody, if there isn't, if you can't think of anybody... Um, what the hell makes you think they're there? Well, I I hope this notion of find the others. I I still I still return to this idea that there must be other people out there. Yeah, but if they were as good as Bertrand Russell, <laughs> I think we would have heard something. Or the systems that exist currently are so so. It's it's finding the noise. This is the interesting thing. Okay, so Brandon DiCamillo 
you put his name into Google, you find the noise, all you get is noise. What he's doing currently is so far below that noise that it's almost impossible to find. You need to know other bits of information in order to find it. I think the same thing is the case with these thinkers. I think they are out there. I think the trick is just breaking through the noise. Mm-hmm. And that's where the trick <coughs> is. And a large, well, and large, some part of it, maybe people in, in some sort of situation like myself that just have, are sitting on something they just can't quite make out. Mm. You know, because we are talking about creating a new world here. And so the old categories, I mean, I, I suspect there are a lot of people who are what I would call awake, uh, who have never even heard the concept of being awake or being asleep, you know, or living in a trance. And they mm. may not even have that concept, but they may not be living in any kind of trance. Yeah. So, but they wouldn't, you'd never know it to talk to them or to hear them talk about anything necessarily. <laughs> so, how do we know? How do we meet the other awake people? Well, we keep, as with SETI or whatever, we, we put, put out, out the, you know, into the ether. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> put right. Out we put out the pheromones, <laughs> you know? Oh, and, man. um,. Uh, I've got some feed, actually, well, only one feedback on uh, someone who was listening to one of our discussions, and I can't remember, oh, what, banal <laughs> was the word. I was impressed that it was, it was in text, but it was, it was, at least it was spelled correctly, and I, I assume he could pronounce it cor- correctly. Ah, <laughs> uh, so the analysis was banal, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. So, I, but again, uh, I can see that. I, then when I read it, I said, yes, of course, there are a lot of the people who might be listening to, stumbling onto my stuff when they hear this conversation are, are going to be um, really put off by it. And so this was one of your, one of your normal podcast listeners commenting about our particular discussions. Yeah, well, it was someone on the TeamSpeak 3 server. I was watching at the time. I was doing some other stuff, but I was running this a recording of our talk mm-hmm. into that, that server. And, yeah. and some people had made some comments. And, and not some people, but one guy made a comment that, uh, let's go somewhere else and not listen to any more of this banal <laughs> something or other. Or yes. maybe he said banal. I don't know. <laughs> banal. Yeah. B grade anal. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, yes. Hey, I no, guess... but like I say, it, I'm used to that kind of stuff. Mm. So, I mean. You uh, have real haters, though. I, I was reading some of the comments, and really, the, the notion that this is your woman and this kind of stuff. That oh, yeah. Were... Some people, <laughs> ju- I just push their buttons, man. They just go crazy. <laughs> Oh my you goodness. know, I, I've had a couple of them, you yeah. know, and, um, so you know, and I don't really need that anymore, actually. I, I mean, I, I spent a lot of years really cultivating uh, ways of pissing people off because I was mm. trying to keep most of them language monkeys out of my life. Yes. So I'd put up various barriers, and some people took more to get rid of than others. Yeah. <laughs> So this has been our longest recording to date, Heron, and maybe we've we've ended up being banal, or maybe we've we've been, we were banal all the way through. That's quite a tongue twister. Um, so yeah, I think you've left me a lot of food for thought. I maybe we I'm... were banal. Yeah, that, you're right. That is a tongue twister. Maybe we were. <laughs> Whoa! From the beginning. From the beginning. Well, I don't want to get past banal. Yeah, from the beginning. Yeah, that's a good yeah. one. <laughs> 
Anyway, so I think we should probably conclude here with the view that uh, there may be some returning topics that have been discussed this evening. Perhaps. Possibly. Anyway, Heron, it's been a pleasure as always. You have a great evening, and we'll talk about the same time next week. Talk to you soon. Good night.